Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. just a little while, I want us to look in Matthew chapter chapter 13 tonight, and I want us to talk about the seeds of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 13, uh, just a little setup here, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives some parables regarding the kingdom of God. And he goes through a list of these parables. And when you go through Matthew, Ma- Matthew chapter 13, you find there are eight parables that Jesus mentions and each one of them deals with a different aspect of the kingdom of God. And then you find, if you look over in the book of Mark, there are two additional parables that are added to what is referred to as the parabolic kingdom teachings, the parabolic uh, mysteries of the kingdom, as some people have said. And so there are two more that you find in the book of Mark. So that brings us to a total of 10. Now tonight, we're not looking at all 10. We're not even looking at all eight in Matthew chapter, chapter 13, but we're going to look at three of the ones in Matthew 13. And those three are the first three, and those three deal with agricultural metaphors. And so I, that's why we entitled tonight The Seeds of the Kingdom. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew 13, starting with verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is the first parable that Jesus mentions in this chapter in Matthew. Now, before we get down into what this means, and Jesus explains what the parable means, we need to talk about why did Jesus use parables to begin with? Well, his disciples ask him this very question. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, the reason Jesus taught in parables was so that everyone could understand him. Now, this was a common way that Jewish teachers would teach. They would teach in parables. They would teach a lesson, usually a single spiritual lesson, that was wrapped up in an earthly example. But Jesus clarifies the reason he uses parables. And it surprises some people because many people say the reason he taught in parables was so that everybody could understand. Actually, Jesus said the reason he taught in parables was the opposite of that. Notice what the disciples asked him. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you speaking to all these people using parables? And he answered them, to you, that is to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. 
For the one who has, more will be given, and he, who ha- he, he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus says the very reason that he's teaching in parables is to veil, is to hide the true meaning from those that God is not dealing with and working with to give them that understanding. Now, for us, that seems shocking that Jesus would say this. Because Jesus, it seems like we would, we would say, well, why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to understand? Well, this was to reveal the people that had receptive hearts and receptive minds to what God was speaking to them about. So then Jesus, a few more verses down, dropping down from verse 13, we're dropping down to verse 18, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. Look what he says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So Jesus says that some of the seed is sown along the path. This is the seed that Satan comes and snatches away. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's the seed that falls on the rocky ground. And it springs up and it begins to send out a sprout, but the root cannot get down into the soil so it can be sustained by the, by the moisture And so then whenever the trial comes, when the heat comes, when the sun bears down on it, the seed dies. He explains the two others. As for what what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So these are the people that everything related to the world, all the distractions of life come and choke out the truth of the word of God. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another and another thirty. So in each of these cases, Jesus says that there is one common factor, and that common factor through the whole thing is the sower. But notice the seed is also this common factor. The seed is a common factor. The sower just sows the seed. But the seed lands in all of these different places, which brings us to the point that Jesus is making about the kingdom of God. That is the rule and reign of God throughout all of the universe, but as it's being evidenced little by little here on earth, because we don't see God's kingdom clearly right now. We don't see it as clearly as one day it will be made manifest. So Jesus teaches these 10 parables, the eight that we find here in Mark, and then the, the, the ones that make up that, uh, the rest to make up the 10 complete parabolic uh, teachings of the kingdom that we find uh, over in Mark. I'm sorry, the, the eight in Matthew, the, others, the other two found in Mark that make up 10. So Jesus is teaching all of these mysteries of the kingdom, and each one of these parables relates to some aspect of the kingdom of God. And this particular parable uh, speaks to this idea. The seed brings kingdom life to receptive hearts. This seed, this word of God, brings 
life, brings that kingdom life, brings that kingdom orientation to those who have receptive hearts. Remember, the seed that fell along the path, that is devoured by the birds, that is snatched up. Satan comes along, and because it doesn't fall on the soil, but it falls along the path, it falls on hard-packed soil that is just run over by traffic, the birds come, they pick that up, and it gets snatched away. It never gets a chance to grow. We have a little, uh, a little stone path out, beside, out behind our house, and some mornings I'll go out and I'll, I'll sprinkle out some of that seed, and I'll sprinkle it along the path, some bird seed, and the birds come and they eat it. Well, I, I noticed the other day that there was some seed that actually got over into the dirt and it had actually begun to take root and grow. But all the seed that is there on that, that hard path, the birds come and they eat them. And so we find this is the same thing Jesus is talking about. The same thing he's talking about is that that seed that's cast along the path, Satan comes and snatches it away. And likewise, the, the seed that is, is cast out there and it lands on rocky ground and it, it can't get a root, it can't get sustained. And because of that, when trials come, it has no root to sustain it. It has no way of, of reaching down and getting into that deep moisture. And so it, it passes away. And the same thing that he mentions when it talks about the cares of the world, the thorns that choke the seed out, those are all the distractions of life that come. But he says that some lands in good soil. Well, he's talking about people's hearts. That's exactly what he says whenever he, he mentions um, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And so the seed is the same. The sower is the same. The sower is just sowing the seed. The seed is just going out as the sower just broadcasts it. He's just, he just casts that seed out and it lands. But notice the sower doesn't say, now that's rocky ground, so I'm not going to cast it over there. Or, or that has a lot of thorns in it, so I'm not going to cast the seed over there. No, the sower just sows the seed. And the seed goes out, and when it lands in receptive soil, that's when it grows. Notice the fact that it's never a seed problem. It's always a soil issue. It doesn't say the seed that landed on the rocky ground was ineffective. The seed that landed among the thorns had a problem. No, the soil is always the problem. The problem with the gospel is never with the gospel. The problem with the true, pure gospel of Christ always, always has no problem related to it. It is perfect. The problem comes with the soil of the heart. So the receptivity of those who hear it, of those who, who, who have that seed cast upon their heart, that is the issue. It's never a seed problem. It's always a soil problem. You notice, let me give you this. This is what Jesus says. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, some commentators who have studied this in depth say that this isn't just the idea of the whole of the gospel. This is the idea of more than that. This is the idea of Jesus saying, I am coming to let people know that the kingdom of God is here 
the kingdom of God is moving. That I'm coming to declare victory. I am coming to show that I'm the Messiah. I'm coming to show that this kingdom that has been spoken of over and over again is going to be set up permanently here on earth when God returns and I am here to announce the kingdom has begun. But we find that the seed brings kingdom life to receptive hearts. That's how we receive Christ. That's what Peter writes about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We have not come to Christ by our own methods. We have not come to Christ by our own means. We haven't fabricated some way that can improve upon the gospel. Not at all. We are born again, and notice he says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the seed of the word of God. And that seed brings kingdom life to receptive hearts. And so the question is, is your heart receptive? Because this is what the parable is teaching. It's never a seed problem. It's always a soil problem. And the sower just sows the seed, and it's the receptivity of the soil that differs. So the kingdom, first of all, that kingdom life is brought about in our receptive hearts by the seed of the word of God. That's what the first parable teaches. The second parable teaches this, that the enemy sows seeds among the good seeds of the kingdom. So we've got one parable dealing with a sower who's sowing seeds. And now we have the second parable. Look at verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we find that the enemy sows seed among the good seeds of the kingdom. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's talking about the enemy of Christ. He's talking about Satan. And just as in this parable, we find that an enemy sneaks in, and there, after the good seed has been sown, the wheat has been sown, the wheat that they will use to to harvest, they'll grind it to flour, they will make bread with it, It's that very sustaining product, that agricultural crop that the enemy comes into and he sows bad seeds. He sows sows weeds and among the wheat. Now, some have said that the weeds that they were probably, Jesus was probably talking about was a particular kind of plant that whenever it's young, it looks a lot like wheat. It's indistinguishable from young wheat sprouts. Because it looks a lot like young wheat. But as it gets older, and as it begins to produce fruit, as it begins to come to maturity, 
you begin to realize that's not wheat, that's a weed. And so you have this, this weed mixed in with all the wheat. And so the servants come to the master and they say, you want us to go out and root up all those weeds? You want us to go pull all these weeds out of the crop? We'll go do it. But the master says, no, because that's going to disrupt the well-being of the wheat. And so leave them. And then at the time of harvest, I'll have the harvesters go out. They'll take all, they'll cut down all the weeds first. And they'll bind them all together and they'll burn them. And then we'll harvest the wheat. Jesus saying that there, within his kingdom, within the kingdom of God, Satan is going to sow those who are not of the kingdom. Now, they're going to look like they're of the kingdom. They're going to grow in some ways. They're going to look very much like the people, the good seeds. They're going to grow up alongside the good seeds, and they're going to look very much like them until you start looking at the fruit. And then you find out that you find the true difference. So what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say that, that in his kingdom he's going to go in and he's going to root out every single one of those weeds while everything is growing? No. In fact, he says he's going to leave them. He's going to leave them where they are. And in the end of all things, when the harvest comes, then he knows exactly who belonged to him and who belonged to Satan. Satan's kingdom is in parallel competition with the kingdom of God. It's important for us to understand. Where God has a plan, Satan has a plan. Where God wants to do one thing, Satan wants to do the opposite. Where God desires one thing for you, Satan wants something else. And Satan's plan may seem good on the surface. Like those, like those bad seeds that were sown. Initially, it may seem like it's productive. Initially, it may seem like there's growth. Initially, it may seem like a good thing. But given time, that harvest shows that you have the, the true reality of what is going on. And so Satan, the enemy, sows seeds among the good seeds of the kingdom. Because Satan's kingdom is in parallel competition with the kingdom of God. And Satan does rule over some things here on earth even now. God has allowed him that authority. Sometimes people say, Satan has no authority whatsoever. Well, but Satan does rule over certain things. God is the ultimate ruler over all things. So we find that anything that Satan can do is allowed by God. It's not like he's just running free with no check, God, but God allows this. Satan's kingdom is in parallel competition with the kingdom of God. Let's look at a verse here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Look at this phrase. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's talking about Satan. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying that before you come to Christ, you are following Satan. I know some people say, well, I've never followed Satan. Before you follow Christ... If you're, you're living according to your own desires, you're living according to your own wants, you're living according to a sinful pattern, you are following the prince of the power of the air. Now, you may not consciously bow down and worship Satan. You may not have some satanic altar or something like that. But by the same token, though, we do have to understand that we are not worshiping God. We are serving 
Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's people who aren't following Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like just like or like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. We were born into that. That's where we are. We are by nature that way. And we are followers, not of God. We are not born following God. We are born in opposition to the work, the will, the word of God. Notice what else we find here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is all, this is all laying out the idea of a, of a systematic and organized opposition to God. It's not some just random chaotic type of pattern. This is, a, this is an organized effort to disrupt the work of God himself. And so some might ask, well, why does Satan sow those seeds? Why does Satan have those, those people, those individuals? Why does, he, why does he have that in the midst of the working of God? Well, because he wants to disrupt the work of God. He wants to destroy the word of God. I know we can all probably think of at some point in time in the past, if we've been in church very long, that there sometimes you find churches where there's just somebody that is just so opposed to everything and everything that is prayed about. And as you're moving forward, there's always like one person who's just so adamantly opposed and they cause a big stir and they, they cause so, all sorts of dissension and problems and concerns. And there was a, a guy that I knew at a church where, where I served before here. And I remember he came to me and he said, uh, I'm thinking about joining this church, but I just want you to know I've had a problem at my last three churches. And he starts laying out all these issues and it was all centered on him. And as he talked to some other people, they were saying, I just don't know if this is the right thing because he is a very divisive person. And, and he had some very strange, off-the-wall theological ideas, and he was very adamant about it. And he would, he would go in, and, he was, and, and I had numerous discussions with him. Uh, he never did join the church, thankfully. But I really believe that this guy, based on what he said himself, uh, and I know some people say you should never judge. You should never judge somebody's salvation. But I'm saying based on what he says, I do not believe, based on the word of God and what he said as witness to that, I do not believe he understood nor applied nor knew the Jesus of the Bible. Yet he said that he did, but it was a very, very different kind of Jesus with a very, very different kind of motive. And so uh, he was one of those people that I, I think of and to the best of my knowledge, biblically, I could say I do believe he was one of those people that was sewn in, at least at that time. I hope by now maybe uh, God has dealt, dealt with him and done a work in his heart and mind, got him aligned with Scripture. But at that time, I could say, I, I do believe I could say with, with certainty, based on what the Bible says, that he was a seed that was sown not by God. And so 
People counterfeit valuable things. That's one of the things that you find all throughout culture. If it's valuable, there's going to be somebody eventually who will try to counterfeit that item. And in the same way, the gospel of Christ is the most valuable thing that we can cling to, that we can hope in, the work of Jesus. And so, of course, Satan would want to counterfeit that and sow in seeds that run uh, in opposition to the work of God. Well, the third parable we're looking at tonight, we're not, again, we're not looking at all ten, but the third parable that relates to this agricultural metaphor is the third one that Jesus mentions here in Matthew chapter 13. And the, the whole idea, the crux of this parable is this simple truth. God's kingdom begins small. I looked at this after I put it in there and I thought, why did I use such a big font for that point? But God's kingdom begins small and it gets big, but God's kingdom begins very small. Look at the third parable Jesus mentions here in Matthew 13. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This parable, Jesus is talking about how the kingdom of God starts very inauspiciously. It starts very, very small. And that mustard seed, that tiny little mustard seed, grows into a very large plant. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. It starts in a very unassuming manner. You might miss it if you aren't looking for it. And this whole parable that he uses is, a, is kind of a callback to a couple of passages that we find in the Old Testament. You find in the book of Ezekiel, God gives a warning to the land of Egypt, a prophetic warning to the land of Egypt. And he's talking about how Egypt seems so strong and so mighty, but how Egypt will come into judgment. And in Ezekiel, God compares Egypt to the kingdom of Assyria. Just as Egypt is a mighty power, a mighty world power, where people flock to that nation there in biblical times, so too Assyria was one of those regions, was a nation that was very powerful and that held a lot of control. And so, and so we find that God compares Egypt and Assyria. And as he is saying, as he's giving this prophecy, as he's doing this comparison, he uses this same type of metaphor to describe what Assyria was like before Assyria was brought low. Look in uh, Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6. He, he compares Assyria to a tree, and all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to the young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It's very similar to what Jesus is referring to there in the book of Matthew. How the kingdom of God is very much like this. We find a very similar thing in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a dream. And in that dream, he saw this tree. And notice what he says about the tree. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And 
all flesh was fed from it. And we find that Daniel gives the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel tells him, that tree is you. And the tree, we find as the prophecy goes, the tree is cut down. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel interprets it. And he says, it's a prophetic dream. That tree is going to be cut down, but that the trunk, the roots will be left, meaning that Nebuchadnezzar will be brought low. He'll be humbled, but he won't be utterly destroyed that God is going to humble him. We find that's exactly what happened. But in both of these cases, God uses this image of a tree, a large tree that the animals live in and live under and that gives food and sustenance to the nations. And he uses that metaphor to refer to these countries, to these regions, to these nations that are so incredibly powerful. And he says that's exactly what the kingdom of God is like. So what Jesus says, but he says the kingdom of God begins like a little mustard seed. And that mustard seed grows and expands and spreads. And in the same way, that's how the kingdom of God works. Sometimes we get very frustrated whenever we think about God's kingdom here on earth. We want it to be made manifest right now. We want it right here, right now. And as some people have said very wisely, God's kingdom is right now, but also not yet. It is here among us. It is working in the hearts of the people who follow Jesus. It is spreading by the seed of the word of God being sown. And just as that is being spread, that is being sown, the enemy, Satan, is sowing discord and strife and disunity by sowing his own seeds in among those who are growing in the kingdom. And if you aren't careful, the kingdom will just be overlooked. It can be very small. Starts very small. You look at Jesus. Jesus started with a small group of disciples. When Jesus ascended to heaven, there were about 120 people that were those devout followers of him, his, his devoted disciples. So he leaves 120 people. 120 people led by this group of apostles, these 120 people, and they are there to go out and they are to spread this kingdom. Seems like a very small amount of people to do such an incredible job. But again, that points back to the power of the Word of God. It's not based upon all of these numbers. It's not based upon human strength. It's not based upon human wisdom. It's not based upon human skill. It's based upon the supernatural, spiritual work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working through the Word of God by His obedient people going out and spreading that message. Notice one thing, and we'll close with this. Notice what Paul writes in the book of Colossians regarding the kingdom. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. God, actually. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That is, the, the way that we walked before, the things we were trusting in before, the paths we were walking down before. He's delivered us from that domain of darkness where there's no light, where we can't see the way, where our hearts are darkened, our understanding is darkened. 
He leads us. He delivers us. He brings us out of that domain of darkness. And then he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, this is what we talked about tonight. This is not the fullness of all the teaching regarding the kingdom of God. This is not every verse about the kingdom of heaven. Books have been written. Multiple volumes have been written in sets regarding the kingdom of God as it's shown throughout the Bible. This is just one little glimpse. But the question is this. Is the kingdom of God working in your heart? Has that seed been sown in your heart? Has that seed found root in your heart? Is that seed growing? Is that seed producing fruit? Are you a true follower of Christ? Have you been sown by the sower in that second parable? Are you growing toward that ultimate harvest where you will be brought in as as someone who has been producing that true fruit of righteousness? Well, how do you know if you are or if you aren't? Well, have you trusted in Christ? Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. Why is that important? Because we're not perfect. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've messed up. You've messed up. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. That's the very essence of not obeying God's word perfectly. It's called sin. Some people say, well, it was a mistake or it was an error. It was this. Yes, but the Bible says it's sin. And sin separates us from God which means every single one of us is separated from God because of our sin. And our sin is ultimately against him. So this poses a problem. We are sinful people. God's a holy God. God is perfect. We are not. Yet, God desires us to be with him. So how does that work? Well, the Bible tells us that God sent his son, Jesus, and he's absolutely perfect. He never breaks any of the law of God. He upholds the word of God absolute with absolute perfection. But then Jesus takes our penalty upon himself. Jesus takes our penalty upon the cross. The fullness of the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus on the cross because we deserve the wrath of God. We don't deserve being in God's family. We don't deserve being adopted into his family. We don't deserve forgiveness. But Jesus took our wrath. He took the punishment of God, the wrath that was due us. He took it upon himself. And then if we trust that he did just that, that he died on the cross for our sins, and then as evidence that that sacrifice was sufficient, God raised him from the dead. Jesus is no longer dead. He's not in the grave anymore. And that resurrection back to life proves that that penalty has been paid in full. But we must trust him. We must surrender. And when we surrender our lives to the leadership of Jesus, and we surrender to him as our Lord, then we receive eternal life. We're no longer our own. We were bought at a price. We were bought by his blood. And so we trust in him and we surrender. How does that work? Well, we we tell Jesus that we desire forgiveness for our sins. 
We repent. We turn away from our sin and we turn toward Christ. We turn away from our sin. We forsake it. We leave it behind. Does that mean that we're going to do things perfectly? No. But we turn away from sin and we turn toward Christ and we begin to pursue a walk with Christ. We surrender our lives to him. His will becomes our will. It's no longer, we're, we're no longer living for ourselves. We're living for Christ and for Christ alone. And if we trust in him, and we trust he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, then we will be saved. So the question is, are you a part of the kingdom? If not, wouldn't you ask God to make you a part of his kingdom, to make you a part of his family now by trusting Christ and surrendering to his lordship? I ask that you would do that. So this is what God's word tells us, at least in part, about the kingdom of God and how the seed of the kingdom is sown by the word of God and how so many false seeds are, are sown with false gospels that look a lot like the real thing, but truly are not because the fruit bears witness that they are not of God. And with that in mind, we can understand, even though we may see those small beginnings in our heart and also in our culture and in our world, God will ultimately bring his kingdom to full, full fulfillment and everything will be seen as it is truly supposed to be. And so I pray that when that day comes, that you, like I can say based on the word of God, not on my own doing, but on what Jesus has done in my life, that I'm going to see that day and I'm going to see him as he is. And I hope and pray that you'll make a decision to follow him and surrender to him. And you too can say the same thing. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. And we give you thanks for the truth of your kingdom. We give you thanks, Lord God, that you sent Jesus when we were without strength, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were far from you, when we were not seeking you, when we had nothing at all to do with you and, and were going our own way, that you came and met us and called to us, and you did so by your word. And so, Father, we give you thanks that you came looking for your, your, those lost sheep that were out there. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would continue to do that work in a powerful way. Father, I pray that maybe somebody's watching or listening right now, and they need that hope that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. I pray they would be bold and make that, make that, that step of surrender and say, I surrender completely to you, Jesus. And so, Father, we pray now that as we look ahead here at our church and we look ahead to uh, the next steps of, of starting back with different programs and different things that we have planned, we pray that you'd be in all the details and that you would give us wisdom and understanding and flexibility. Pray that you would do a mighty work within us for your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. And I hope you can join us in person this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. here in our worship center. We're having one worship service, and uh, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. We'd also love for you to be a part of our Sunday school hour at 9.15 a.m. on Sunday. If you've never gotten plugged into a Sunday school class, this would be a great Sunday to take that next step 
and just get to know people in a, in a community where we uh, come together, we worship together, we read God's word together, we learn together, we support each other, we encourage each other. And I just pray that you would consider being a part of that as well. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll see you Sunday.